I'm Ginger Birkenbuehl. And I'm Esther Ikoro. And we're the hosts of the Honest Field Guide podcast. Entrepreneurship is no joke. The journey is full of anticipation, failure, hope, and disappointment. You'll make money and be totally broke at the same time. The Honest Field Guide podcast tells you the truth. We know being an entrepreneur is crazy hard and you will sometimes cry at dinner. Listen in to be inspired, laugh, and learn how to really thrive on your business journey. Hi, Ginger. Hey, Esther. How's it going? We have been killing it with the podcast lately, if I do oh, say so myself. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, definitely pat. We need to pat each other on the back. Yeah. I can't reach you, though. You're all the way over I there. I know, okay. but it's been it's been a lot of fun. I mean, we've been rolling for a while now and meeting some really interesting people, hearing fascinating stories around entrepreneurship. And, you know, today I'm super pumped because this is our, you know, first conversation with someone that has a multi-generational legacy um, family of brands or branded family, however you want yeah, to refer legacy's to it. Yeah, putting it lightly. I mean, that's light, right? I mean, it's <laughs> like light. So um, it's, it's kind of cool because I think a lot of new entrepreneurs really see what's in front of them step by step, which is what has to happen when you're growing a business. But when you consider what it takes to grow and sustain and carry on a business over Decades and decades and decades. And I feel like this particular person we're about to talk to, you know, we're maybe running into 100 years of family-owned business. That is inconceivable. It's inconceivable. I mean, right? Yeah. I mean, the thought of how many evolutions the brand and the family and the world has gone through to, yeah. to still be, you know, moving forward and, and making strides and changes and growing with the times and be relevant is no small feat. So yes. tell us who we have with us today. So as vice chairman of Breakthrough Beverage Group, Danny Wirt serves on the company's board of managers and works closely with the CEO and executive management on integration, strategic planning, and supplier relations. A skilled leader with a proven track record of success, Danny leads with passion and a commitment to the future of the organization. As a fourth-generation family leader, Danny assumed this position from president and CEO of Wurtz Beverage Group, where he oversaw day-to-day -day leadership of the company's domestic and international businesses. He has served in a variety of roles for Wurtz Beverage, including oversight of the company's commercial teams, corporate strategy, and supplier relations. But here's the really cool thing. Danny's brand promise on Twitter is, food drink enthusiast, distributor of all things wine, spirits, beer, and lifelong puckhead. <laughs> Welcome, Danny. Don't forget the last one. <laughs> and mostly dad. And mostly, and mostly dad. dad. Yeah, I saw that. That's I love so... it. And mostly dad. That's so great. Well, welcome. Well, dad. No. <laughs> <laughs> I well, will not get into parenting in this conversation. That's a, well, that's, a, that's a whole nother. Uh, is that a whole nother podcast? Well, talk actually, about parenting. in family business, there's a lot of intersection between, you know, your personal life, your family life, and business. But um, maybe that's for another session. Well, I mean, we can start off and talking about this. I mean, one of the things I wanted to understand is, you know, your fourth generation of the Wirtz family of businesses, mm -hmm. and I'm curious: Are you teaching your own children about entrepreneurship, or are you? showing them what it looks like, or is it even coming up yet? What's happening with that? It's interesting, because I think for our kids, um, they go to hockey games like it's Sunday dinner, just like I did, right? And um, my oldest daughter, Rosemary, has been in three Stanley Cup parades. These are 
amazing privileges and things that she probably doesn't even realize the context and how special that that experience is. So, you know, they're at the age now where we start to explain the family business, um, the role of these more high profile companies like the Blackhawks and the United Center and, you know, how special they are and really just instilling that humility to appreciate them and to respect them and not to be something that you run around uh, bragging about in the schoolyard kind of thing, which was very much how I was brought up, uh, given given access and, and exposure to so many really world-class special opportunities. With your daughters, and you have two. I do. Um, do they seem interested in what you're doing as a business, or do they seem not interested? Well, I think in general, like it, we have a lot of conversation about all the different things that are going on. So we talk about the business of the Blackhawks. We talk about the United Center. You know, it's very delicate in the alcohol beverage business talking about, you, think? you know, wine, spirits and beer. But also <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to stigmatize it either. You know, right. I want them to know that there's a responsible way and there's an age piece and that they when they get older, they can enjoy it. But, you know, so it's really important to actually engage in that conversation about that. Um, they kind of distill things down to just, you know, Dad, you go to every day and just sell beer, um, which isn't exactly <laughs> accurate. But, you know, I, le- I let them have it. But it's, I think, really fun to talk about these businesses. Some of the newer businesses like Banner, which is a video production company, they're fascinated by as kids that are growing up with TikTok. Yeah. The idea that you could be, you know, as a profession, go to work every day and make videos sounds really cool. So it they're looking cool. to get some internships there. Um, you know, our involvement and partnership with Osrey Garden, um, my youngest Juniper loves making flower arrangements when she goes over there. So they're seeing this amazing world of opportunity and different types of businesses and really try to talk about that these are businesses. They're really special and cool, but there's people that work there. There's people that kind of dedicate a lot of energy to making these businesses and successful. It's good for them to understand that as well. So I want to understand your evolution into stepping into the family business. Because it's really amazing that you have this perspective to talk to your daughters about it and you're kind of preparing them for possibly engaging further with a family business. What was it like for you? Because you're a creative, you were Mm -hmm. in the music industry. So I want to understand what that journey was like, how you decided to move to New York and and pursue that, and then what brought you back into the family business. So I think in family businesses, there's sort of two paths. One is sort of you grow up in the business as soon as you're old enough, you you are actually employed by the business and you sort of, that's your path. And for many people, that's very successful. They work from the ground up. They take on lots of roles in the company. And and that really is their world. And that's that's great. I have cousins that have done that. And it's, it's a great experience. For me, growing up, there really wasn't a lot of pressure. My dad didn't put a ton of pressure on me to go do this. And then, you know, we expect you to join the business. My parents were always really supportive of following my own path. So as I got interested in marketing and music and entertainment and all those kinds of things, you know, kind of high school and college, I very much wanted to kind of go do my own thing. And so they were always very supportive from, you know, taking internships over the summer at record labels to eventually going on tour, you know, huge leaps of faith for my parents to see that this was going to eventually lead into something more stable. And um, eventually, you know, um, you know, getting employed in in New York and, and really forming my own career was really important to me. Because it also proved that I could be employed, I could have my own career without necessarily um, needing the family, and eventually kind of having an evolution to where I actually wanted to be and bring those skills into the family business 10 years into my my career. Did you feel when you were in the music business that there wasn't a future there? Because I'm trying to understand 
how you got pulled into the business and decided that that was the right path mm-hmm. because I'm in the music business as well with my husband, with our other alter ego band, Utah sure. Carol, right? And yeah. we spend a lot of time writing songs. And there's the beautiful side of the music business and there's the ugly side. And I feel like you were on a fun, creative side of the business. How in the world did you give that up? And did you give it up? My primary area in the music business was kind of on the agency side. So working for Cornerstone and The Fader was a great time in the, in the you know, kind of um, early 2000s. Great music was being released out of New York. Um, we played a role in helping to support promotional and marketing efforts of labels. It was the early days of sort of, quote, internet marketing when it was its own department, like new media. It wasn't marketing. It was its like own thing. And that was also the early days of Napster, too. So you saw the kind of business model of music changing. I was fortunate at this at the company at Cornerstone too. It was early days and they were one of the first agencies that really started to bring brands into music and then sort of be that sort of credible broker to bring artist partnerships together. Now, today that is like commonplace and all that credibility issue is sort of, you know, off to the side. Bands and, and artists are obviously embracing brands and there's collaborations and all that kind of stuff. But back in the day, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't always so obvious. How has your creative background informed how you run the businesses today? Not the new businesses you've launched, mm-hmm. but how you're actually integrating with the Wurtz family business. And I ask this because you're fourth generation. Mm-hmm. The previous generations, do they even know exactly what's happening in terms of um, um the integration of of technology and music and creativity with the companies? Because I'm not sure, you know, how the companies have been run, but I imagine just because of how I know you, you've brought a lot of freshness and innovation to the brands. Has that, how how has that worked for you? Because, you know, you have this great background. Well, Your your predecessors didn't have that, right? I mean, they weren't living in a loft in London, you know, in the music business. But every, you know, in these multi-generation businesses, mm-hmm. I think each generation brings something new to the table, the ones that are successful. And I think actually the more successful ones, each generation brings that different perspective. In this day and age, we are in an era of disruption. We're in an era of so much technology influencing every single business. There's not a business that doesn't have that. And so having some experience there and having a little bit of a different perspective, I think, has probably been pretty helpful to the to the company to look at things a little bit differently. It only works if it's embraced by the family. And I think from the day I moved here from London, my dad saw my my different experience as an advantage versus something that, you know, go sit in that office and learn the business for the next 20 years and forget about what you did before. No, he was the opposite. He was, Danny looks at this differently. Why don't we bring him into the meeting? Maybe he can add something that we haven't thought of before. And if if that generational acceptance happens, it really becomes very evolutionary. And that's how I think these businesses can live on from generation to generation, sort of embracing it. And my dad's a great example of, you know, he admits to maybe not knowing how to do all this stuff, but he usually knows what's important. The fact that you had somebody, your father, who believed in you, gave you the platform to say, let him do this work because I see it and it has to happen. I don't know what I'm doing, but I want him to manage it. Because I think um, some people don't have that buy-in and it's hard for them to you know, get the work done. And I also think that you clearly are a brilliant communicator, so you're able to articulate some of the things that need to happen you know, to grow the business. I like 
the idea of having an internal team, especially when it's related to your family business and the Blackhawks, because you're able to control your message a mm-hmm. little bit better. Sure. You know, we talk about this all the time with entrepreneurs. When you don't put yourself out there and your message, someone else will. Yeah. And then when that message gets out there, whatever way it gets there is the way it's going to stay, especially in the sure. age of the internet. So, yes. you know, you have the ability to craft interesting, intimate, personal stories around the Blackhawks team. And fans love that. I mean, they want those humanizing stories because, as you said, sometimes with the athletes, they're not really humanized. They're, they're larger than life, and they don't have regular problems that everybody else has. They're Absolutely. Just, you know, they're playing on the ice or on the field, and um, that's sort of what people see. So I love, I love the idea that you were able to bring this together and bring it to life. I do want to talk about entrepreneurship a little bit. So you are the fourth generation. You grew up seeing your father, your grandfather. And I don't know, did you see your great grandfather work? A little bit. You did? I'm not really working. He was sort of at the end of his end of his robe, but still, you know, I I witnessed his presence. He was a a very intimidating, uh, large man that, you know, so sort of, and and obviously Danny's face, uh, (laughs) especially as like whatever I was a three or four year old. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, I mean, I, I, I love to understand what that would have been like to grow up as a young boy. Cause I saw a picture of you in your father's arms as mm -hmm. a baby, what it was like to grow up in an intense environment of business and entrepreneurship. I mean, I can't, I just know how I am as a business owner with my own children. And sometimes they're really confused by how much I work. You know, they just think you don't love us because you're working so much. I love what I do. I'm passionate about the work. What could have it been like when you were a kid seeing all of this happening? Amazing experiences, great opportunities. But at the same time, there were lots of different eras. I'll, I'll put it that way, right? So we're talking about eras of, you know, intense working, you know, sitting at a desk, doing work, right? Bleeding into some of the personal time, right? You know, you're talking about very patriarchal constructs, right? So, you know, not everything was, it was not ro- not always great. And, and but that's for the times, right? And so you'd hope that each generation shifts a little bit. On the work-life side, I mean, I think for my dad, he was taken away from the family a lot because of work, maybe more than needed to be, and he would admit that, right? Um, boundaries between him and his dad about when was work time and when was personal time were not really respected. And so for my dad and I, for example, he doesn't bother me on the weekends about work stuff. You know, he won't drag me down away from my family. And, and I think that just that awareness uh, allows the business and the family dynamics to continue to grow in a healthy way, as opposed to kind of it being this overbearing weight of the world of the family and the business on your shoulders. That's where family businesses probably suffer. So when you think about when you were growing up, it was normal to you having generations of the men working and building the business. What was the conversation like in terms of um, secession for you? Because I think when I talk to entrepreneurs now and business owners now, especially ones that are maybe 20 or 30 years in, I'm astonished that no one has ever had a conversation about what happens to the business if I decide to leave it or something happens mm-hmm. where I have to. Right. You know, did you have conversations like that? Because this is actually important for businesses sure. that are growing quickly. One person and there's wealth being developed 
seemingly overnight. Yeah. I think, again, with each generation, it becomes more open, right? So oh, I think there was okay. a plan set. My okay. great-grandfather actually had a very st- specific plan, and his intention back, you know, in the 40s and onwards was to build a company that could be passed on for future generations. And it was never about one person getting wealth or one branch of the family. It was about each generation essentially being a caretaker and handing the land over, so to speak, to the next generation in a better place than they left it, right? So that sort of underlying philosophy was there. Now, the practicalities of who's in charge and who's next and all that kind of stuff was a little more opaque, but it was very clear to those that were in the succession line. And I think now um, we have a much greater conversation around how do we build up the next generation of uh, family, of management, of all those things. I think succession in general both family and on the management side, is a much more open process than it used to be. You know, having conversations with people about what their path looks like and being able to plan for that and provide a successor and proper transitions versus, you know, sometimes even for the employee, they felt obliged to sort of work until they, they died at their desk. I think that that's changed a lot. So we have a lot of conversations, not even as much about individuals, but more about how do we continue to grow this business for the next generation and make some plays and bets and and, and sort of strategy that will not actually affect my generation and four, but probably my kids and their kids. You know, when I first hired my first employee, it was scary to me. I was like, oh, Mm. my gosh, I'm responsible for someone else's life and their money. Yes. And, you know, you have all these these thoughts that I have so much responsibility not only to my own family, but I've got a bunch of other people to take care of, and then they have to take care of people, and then they have to take care of people. You know, that becomes um, a lot. I, I think that actually for, for a family like ours that has been in business for so long, that ends up becoming one of your main drivers. It actually becomes less about your own family and, frankly, about the responsibility. I mean, so in, in Beverage, we, we employ about 7,200 people, right? And we've seen generations work for our company and then their kids work for our company. And that's, I mean, that's, that's intense. And you see, it's you know, beautiful, and you see the children of, you know, uh, employees that have put their kids through college and now they're professional and you remember they were, you were, they were born. I mean, that's really what makes these businesses really special. And for young businesses, so um, in the case of Banner, for example, we've got a young workforce, but, you know, we're going to have to think through. It's one thing to sort of get your employees on board when they're in their 20s and it's their first job. But how are you an employer when they now have dependents and they're going through, they're in their mid midlife and how are they developing their careers and how are they being compensated and all those kinds of things? How are they planning for retirement? Those are real life stuff that, you know, in a life cycle of a company, you have to think about. Thankfully for a young company like Banner, I do have some experience in some of the, you know, the more traditional businesses to help them figure out, you know, how they think about their workforce as they start to age and they start to, because that responsibility is probably one of the most important things, you know, as a business owner, you, you, you take on and to do it right, you know, has to go hand in hand with your own personal success or the success of the company. And, um, you know, our mantra is if you put the company first, everything will follow. And I think if you really create a healthy environment and a healthy company for, you know, then, then the employees benefit from that. So, and it's a great responsibility. I wouldn't trade it for anything. With all of this legacy um, and all of this responsibility, what keeps you up at night? What are your fears? What gives you anxiety? And how do you sure. work through that? I think it's it's pace of change. I personally have a pretty high threshold for change, and I, I actually am inspired by it. But at the same time, I know that um, you know moving battleships can be really tough. 
you know, there's something refreshing about companies like Banner and Varier that are small. You know, they can move on a dime. Larger entities like Breakthrough Beverage or the Blackhawks or the United Center doesn't have that ability. But we really try to build in that agile environment and flat organizations to allow it because I do think the changing consumer um, we're seeing it every day, whether that's consumption habits on the beverage side and people shifting categories and no longer brand loyal to in the hockey world, how the younger fans and generations of fans will access tickets and access the sports as entertainment, as part of an overall entertainment dollar. I mean, these are all sort of existential threats that are that are out there. And I think as a owner and as a family long-term thinking, those are the things that keep you up. Now, the management team, they've got to worry about today. They've got to worry about, you know, getting the product uh, on the field, so to speak, or, or or delivering the business today. But some of the things that we do is have to think about what does this look like 5, 10, 20 years down the road, and can we start to plant the seeds today to ensure that we're prepared for that pace of change and that kind of disruption that's, that's around the corner. Seems like you were born to do this work. I mean, everybody that's born into a family business isn't born to do the work. Did you get an MBA? Is this just something that you feel like no, is I, just a natural instinct thing There was a point where I probably could have done my MBA, and then I think I just sort of chose this this work, just thrown into the work as my sort of on-the-job. So I always, for example, there was an era at, at, um, at the time where it's beverage where you know I was able to go out and hire and bring in a real blue-chip head of HR, a new uh, head of finance, um, a new CIO, and those three functions in particular – I think I could have taken classes at Kellogg to teach me about HR, but working hand-in-hand with a top-flight HR leader gave me such great understanding of that function, for example. Same thing with IT, same thing with finance, right? So I benefited from, frankly, just building a team around me and working with really talented people that are experts in their functions, surrounding yourself with good people, and being humble to let other people you know, really shine in their areas is really a recipe for success. So frankly, everywhere I go, I just try to make sure I continue to surround myself with people that are smarter, people that are better, and people that are skilled, and frankly, that will take us you know, further ahead. I wanted to ask you um, a little bit, switching gears, about food and the taste of alcohol. Mm. You do a lot of traveling around the world. Mm-hmm. Are you traveling for food or are you traveling for alcohol to taste different things? How are you curating the types of beverages and the types of foods that come into your, you know, words family business ecosystem? So you probably are referring to whatever persona I may be portraying <laughs> on social media. On Instagram. But, but make no mistake, there's like, there's like a day of meetings before you get to have the nice dinner or whatever. So anyway. But look, I think the, the beverage alcohol industry, you know, has changed so much. Spirits was kind of a commodity items. Wine is really a, in the U.S. and North American palate relatively new in the last, you know, 40 years. But the combination of the rise and the appreciation of spirits, wine and craft beer in the context of food moments. So, you know, when we are at specific events or there are especially in wine, you know, food and wine have just it's a marriage that's always been together. So very fortunate that oftentimes there's a food element, whether you're having a meeting at a winery and their chef comes out and makes you dinner. I mean, it's, it's, it is a nice perk to the, mm-hmm. it is the romance of the industry. Unfortunately, the reality is we could 
go out to Cicero today where they're, you know, sending trucks out for the holiday rush and it's a lot less glamorous. <laughs> so that's really the reality. Right. Um, we're very fortunate that we do get to see some of the um, the nicer elements of the end product and the end experience for the consumer is this sort of elevated, you know, whether it's through cocktails or whether it's through wine and beer too. I want to understand, do you mentor other people? Because I feel like the knowledge that you've gained over the years and the knowledge that you're still receiving and you're you're curious, you're looking around, you're talking to people, you're bringing people together at the company. How are you helping someone else learn? I know that you're, you know, talking to your family about how to continue the business, mm-hmm. but are there other people that are not relatives that you're sort of taking under your wing and saying, learn this, do better, mm-hmm. you're doing great. You know, sure. what does that look like for you? I can't say that I have like a formal mentoring program, but I really try and I think this has been a hallmark of my family is to, to be accessible, right? So when friends need a sounding board or colleagues need to talk about their career or what they want to do, or a friend of a friend is an entrepreneur that has a new product that he wants me to try, like I try to make myself available because I think it's just an important thing. And frankly, it's very inspiring. I, I get a lot out of just meeting people and where they're at and what kind of, you know, where they're at in their journey and Whatever I, you know, can impart, you know, I, I try to take that seriously, knowing that um, I sort of pinch myself a little bit. I guess I do have some experience that is very helpful. And so any opportunity I have to share that um, is is definitely um, sort of part of my DNA without it being a formal. I've got five mentors that I or mentees that I'm working with. I, I feel like I'm kind of constantly doing that as much as I can just with an open door. How do you stay grounded? You know, I ask that because um, we met in Michigan mm-hmm. at, um, what's the place called where the, um, oh, the rides um, are? And uh, Captain Mike's. We met at Captain Mike's. Yes. And the reason we met, my son noticed your wife's cell phone cover, which is the same exact cell phone cover as mine, because, you know, my kid's a hockey player and he's always looking at the puck, so he notices weird things that nobody yeah, else notices. Yeah. And we had this conversation. And what I know about you um, and your wife, Anne, and your children you're so kind and so grounded. And you just said, I try to help people that ask. Um, how do you maintain that? And I and I say that because as an entrepreneur and a small business owner myself and the work that I'm doing nationally and internationally with some of the global brands I work with, um, sometimes I, I have to put up a little bit of a wall because I've got to get work done. Yeah. And there's a lot of people asking for things and people that need things from me. And, and I can only give so much. But yeah. You seem so giving all the time and so open. I can't even figure out with all the things that you're doing how you manage to maintain that. Do you meditate? Are mm. you <laughs> are you just sitting back, you know, having an old fashioned at the end of the night? You know, what does it take for you to stay kind? Oh, that's it's it's nice you say. And um, I, I think it starts with my wife. I mean, Anne is my kind of grounding rock. I mean, she's really tough on me. She does not allow me to get any my head any bigger than it needs to be. And, you know, when I walk through that door at night, I don't care what cool, successful, high profile, awesome thing I got to do as an executive in the world. I walk through that door and we got to get dinner on the table. You got to read to the kids. You got to put them to bed. You, got, you better help me out. You better do something around here. I, you know, so that you that, better do something around here. Yeah, exactly. What have um, you done for us lately? Yes. What have you? Oh, yeah. I mean, every day I have to reprove myself, but um, and we have fun with that. But that that really is the starting point. And I think, um, you know, for me, the family grounding. You know, I'm you know, and, and 
look, I love our neighborhood. I love living in the city of Chicago and just being immersed in reality, right? I, I don't want to run off to a bubble. Um, you know, I think I, I, I take with all this great opportunity and success with the grain of salt that, you know, the world is complicated and challenging for a lot of people and just try to stay in that space so that I remain humble and, and open to, to helping. stay uh, connected to the new and innovative things that are happening Hmm. in Chicago? Because I have been fortunate enough to be able to understand a little bit about supply chain, how larger companies link into smaller companies and and different sized brands to keep their offerings diverse and keep new things coming to their their fans, their consumers, their clients. Um, What do the eyes and ears of your business look like? I I mean, you can't be everywhere at once. So I'm always interested to know how you put those tentacles out so that if there's something happening in Chicago, you know, you know about it, the Blackhawks know about it, Banner knows about it. What does that look like for someone working with this many different entities. It ties into your other question about mentorship a little bit in that Mm -hmm. that accessibility and having the right relationships in town with different business leaders, different colleagues, people doing exciting things, right? That's tend to be where I feed off of what's happening. And it it may be a couple people that work in different pockets in tech. It could be people that work in sort of more traditional businesses in Chicago that I respect and learn from. And just being open and continuing to foster those relationships to keep the inflow of of what's happening very much front and center so you don't become too insular and really trying to be very open to that and as well as and obviously my ventures like um, you know with with Varier in particular who um, a very creative group of people that are sort of sometimes a couple steps ahead of the game are really inspiring to me to sort of understand where the world might be going and help inform some thinking on on the business side how do you know when you're hiring someone that's doing something that's so far off from your square of genius, how are you able to to vet that person? How do you kind of hone your eye to be able to look at different people in different disciplines and say, that person right there is the one that's going to fit here, that knows what mm. they're doing, that's going to be able to push things forward? Because you talked about analytics. We've talked about food. We've talked about alcohol. We've talked about creativity and video and, and social media and storytelling. Kind of the stakes are a bit higher to make sure, sure that you're choosing like the A people and the A players. How do you approach you know hiring and engaging people like that in, in those various parts of your companies? Yeah, I think... Um... I think that's one of the great things about being exposed to so many different people and and companies. And I think the health of our businesses is bringing in people that don't fit the mold. And I I encourage as much of that as possible, people that kind of come in with a little bit more of a disruptive mindset or a different skill set than what we're used to seeing in any of these very traditional businesses. So um, I think it's a huge opportunity in hiring this next generation of workforce will be a huge step for us, I think, across. I mean, our businesses are, again, they're four generations in. They're fairly traditional if you just look at them. You know, real estate, sports and entertainment, beverage distribution, these are sort of tried and true. But what will reinvent them will be the people that work there. And so I'm very excited by this next generation. There's a lot of, you know, flack that comes the way of whatever, whether you're labeling them as millennials or Gen Z. 
But that's just that's the world we live in. And so we have to figure out how to adapt and invite those and include those ideas into the conversation. I have to know, what is your favorite drink and what's your favorite food? Mm. When you sit down at I'm a I'm an bar. overthinker of everything. And this would be <laughs> one of those things where it's like, well, are you talking about a summer day on the porch? Or are you talking about like by the fire? <laughs> because those will be different things. I like that, yeah. No, so um, I enjoy wine with food. I enjoy craft beer just as a beer drinker and um, probably as a spirit. I might say gin is my favorite. So I love gin. We're, we're like minds. I'd in like that. to have some right now. What time is yeah. it? Hey, it's gin o'clock. <laughs> yeah. All I mean, I named world. one of my daughters Juniper just to give okay. it some I know, perspective. Right? So uh, I thought you were going to say gin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Juniper is a great name because it makes yeah. me think of the song. Yeah. Not, yes. not, you know it's what I mean? That's name. really what I what I think about as a musician. So. Um, <laughs> Asbury Garden and Verrier, mm-hmm. these are two really cute brands. Yes. They have cute logos, cute visuals. Mm-hmm. The people that work there are cute. I mean, everything is just great about them. It's just a really, really two great brands. Um, sure. How did that really come to fruition, those two brands? I mean, Asbury was before you, right? Am I sure. pronouncing that right? Asbury, yeah. Asbury. Yeah. That was before you, oh, though, sure. right? Oh, sure. I mean, this, this is a woman-owned business. She's she's been around for a while. She's got the most beautiful, high end, elegant arrangements and flowers. And now the new store that's across the street from Google at the Ace Hotel mm-hmm. has the best stuff ever. I yes. mean, you know, one hundred and fifty dollars candles. You know, two hundred dollars candles. I mean, some of those things are really for special occasions. Sure. But then there's there's a range of things. Yep. Talk about those two brands and what was your involvement in bringing those to life? So this is not a straightforward answer, but that's the beauty of the what this whole project is about, really. And um, it started first from a, a, a friendship between Chris Kasky, who was the, the president of Pitchfork at the time. And at the time, I was um, I just assumed the role of um, running uh, the be- uh, Wurtz Beverage at the time. And lots of mutual friends wanted to put us in touch. We got together. We were both kind of talking about our companies, and they were about to be, in their case, in the process of being sold to Condé Nast. And in our case, we were about to do a merger to form Breakthrough. And so a lot of relatable experiences, two very different companies, but sort of like two young guys trying to figure out, you know, how this whole thing works. Plus the fact our kids are the same age. We both play hockey. And so we just had, a, we kind of fast friends. And so over time, we had talked about different things we wanted to do and where he was going to head um, sort of post-Condé acquisition. I always love to share kind of entrepreneurial ideas and where they fit in, right? Were these ideas for the Blackhawks, United Center, Beverage, and things that maybe sat outside of that? And where what would be my vehicle for, for that to happen? So through these kind of conversations and backs of napkins and things like that, Chris Kasky and then Mike Renault, who was the um, creative director for, for Pitchfork at the time, you know, really were uh, developing their business plan for what would eventually become Verrier. And, um, you know, our conversations ended up becoming one and forming a kind of a three-person partnership uh, that was Verrier in, in output. So um, really the idea of, of, of sort of this creative entity that is both uh, disciplined but also open and has the ability to do lots of different types of creative work uh, was really appealing to me, both in the traditional sense of them being a resource for something like the Blackhawks, to which they're an agency that work with the Blackhawks, but also in a non-traditional way to become partners in sort of venturing into new things and creating uh, our own brands um, and creating brands and working with other brands that we love. So a really um, somewhat esoteric, I guess, as I'm explaining it, but also it makes total sense to me where the rest of my world is so regimented. Yeah. This becomes almost this free creative space, um, but with sort of really smart, grounded 
Oh yeah, well, you're, well, you're working with a brand strategist, yes, which is what I am. Yeah. So I mean, this is these are the types of people that you want in your circle of influence. Absolutely, you, you, anyone that doesn't have somebody that understands brand strategy, especially when you're an entrepreneur or own multiple businesses like yourself. Yes. These are the types of people that you need to have always like at your wing all yeah. the time. So they are my wingmen. Yes. Um, <laughs> in many ways, they're my thought partners. If I'm if I have a harebrained idea of something out of the blue or I'm kind of trying to figure out something on one of our businesses. Yeah. We great. don't think the same way. No. We have different thought processes. I and, mean, that's and why. And all the, the, the framework and thinking. And I mean, it's it's such a great and important discipline. So this entity, Verrier, then um, had the ability to partner with Elizabeth Cronin, who was the founder of, of, of Osprey Garden, obviously. She's amazing. She's uh, super smart. So we just celebrated uh, 20th anniversary of Osprey Garden, wow. the Wicker Park store. Yeah, so it's big. So you think about any retailer that's been around for 20 years in that neighborhood. Yeah. And you've seen Nike just left the area. Uh, Mark Jacobs came and went. I mean, you're talking about major retailers that have come and gone in that neighborhood. And Retail's tough. Her little flower shop, yeah. this whole little bit of jewelry and some weird candles and incense, you know, ultimately, you know, prospered for 20 years. And we were able to partner with her and expand the Osrey uh, brand into this new retail location in um in Fulton Market, uh, adjacent to the Ace Hotel. So for us, um, as a collective group of partners, now not only do we have sort of the Varier consultancy and agency model, but we have a real-life retail environment. So it's a really important, especially in the creative fields where everything is sort of digital and sort of theoretical, you know, go and stand in a retail store and watch how people shop things and watch how people interact with brands in a store it's a great kind of analog for us in thinking about other ideas to be able to see this. So not only is um, brick and mortar tough, but, um, you know, continuing to differentiate. And I think what Elizabeth's curated is obviously an environment that is so aspirational and you want to be part of it. You, the, the number one thing we hear in the store is, I want to live in the store. I mean, Esther, yeah. when I first brought you across the street, you were overwhelmed with sensation, right? A, Talk about what I'm happened when you walked in there. Oh, Yes. Person. I love beauty. You know, when I first came to Burke, it was through the lens of literally photography and videography. And I love strategy and I love experiences. And so when I walked in, it was just every single thing that I love. And I love nature. Mm-hmm. And I love sense. So it's just oh, all and of it. It was overload, and probably. It's so well executed. I'm a, just a sucker for the execution where everything feels like it fits mm-hmm. that I just had to buy something. And my girlfriend says the nose ring I bought her from there is her, her favorite thing. Awesome. And she just like it's part of her like life now. So I mean it's and then we had, we went experience. to another another shop in Detroit and you're like, Oh, they copied. You know, I mean it it's just like th- now that you've had that experience, nothing else really stands up to right. it pretty much. That's <laughs> that's the truth. You know, the the books that are there, it's just it's absolutely remarkable. Um I wanna ask you about some of your work and philanthropy. Sure. Chicago Blackhawks has a foundation yep. and you also serve on several boards um, in the city. I'd like for you to talk a little bit about that world, which is very different than the entrepreneur world, right? Sure. So Absolutely. what is the Blackhawks Foundation? What is your involvement in it? And sure. how are you bringing that to the next level? Because yeah. I've never heard, I just first heard of it. Literally, I want to say, a few weeks ago because you posted something on Instagram. For foundation night. Right. For one so of the games. Talk so, about that. You know, uh, the foundation used to be called Blackhawk Charities. 
And if you actually go way back, you know, it started, I think my grandmother started a scholarship in Maryville. So, you know, it always was sort of a component of the Blackhawks. But in the day and age of sort of tying, you know, kind of social impact and, and giving into business's core strategy, the foundation is relatively young in that sense. So for the last 12, 13 years, we went from, I think, granting about $750,000 to well over $2 million out into the community. And Goodness gracious. Really focusing on sort of um, health and wellness, kind of community improvement, um, housing, um, and, and really with a um, focus around the west side. So it was primarily a granting entity. We would fundraise and then grant that money back out. In the last couple of years when we built the Fifth Third Arena, the quick little story on that was sort of initially came as a um, an opportunity to build a practice ring for the Blackhawks. My dad looked at the numbers just to see the amount of usage, and he said, well, you know, absolutely not. And he goes, if we're going to do this, let's really do it right, and let's make it a community impact project. So the team will get everything they need to be successful, but 85% of the time that the team is not using it, we want to make sure that this rink is available to the community. So we have a dedicated amount of uh, ice time and programming that is dedicated to uh, community programs. Um, we have established our own program, so opportunities to bring and partner with CPS and other schools to come to the Fifth Third Arena to um, their sort of SEL and STEM-based programs that happen to use skating and hockey as sort of the the model. And again, I don't think the objective is we, we're going to find the next NHL player. That would be great. That'd be awesome. It's but it Can is. Can it be Trace Birkenbuehl? That <laughs> works for me. Just putting it out there. Yes, um, but I think it's as much about just that exposure, something new trying something new, learning something new, being exposed to something that in their wildest dreams they were not able to have access to is as much as actually learning how to play hockey and joining a team. So I think we're trying to create those programs that are really about the exposure and the enrichment through the kind of you know STEM or cell type programs. So I'm really excited about what we're doing over there. It's still early days. Um, we hired a new director uh, executive director for the foundation who's got a lot of experience to really tighten up how we do things. And I think this is an aspect of sports that, of course, you can check the box, but I think more and more it's becoming critical that as a brand, as an organization, as our family, that we really make our mark and put a dent in some serious issues that we have the ability to, to make an impact on. Can you share some stories around when you were a little boy growing up in the Words family? Mm-hmm. And you were learning how to play hockey, right? They were, I'm sure you wanted it, right? They didn't force you. Get on the ice, yeah. you know what I mean? Um, talk a little bit about what it was like in the family and how you sort of moved through the years and then, you know, 18 years old. And then, you know, next thing you know, you're, you know, in a flat in London. Sure. You know, what was that like as a little boy? So just playing hockey, I think, I mean, I, I love the sport. It didn't take any nudging from my family to to get involved. I just, I enjoyed it. And it was, as it's kind of reflecting back, I didn't really even play competitively, meaning travel hockey until sixth grade. So, and that was different at the time. Now it's like, you know, you show some interest in the sport and by five years old, you're already traveling and playing four or five days a week. So I just, I love the sport. I love to play. I think my family loved to watch me play. I mean, I have great memories of my dad being at my games, my grandfather coming to the games and watching me as well. 
and just having a really good experience. Getting more serious as I got through middle school and then in high school playing at Loyola Academy and having just amazing friends and teammates. It was a, a special thing to be able to do that. And then sort of um, quick little plug, we we ended up in my senior year, we won the state championship, the Illinois Hockey State Championship, in the first year of the United Center. So we're obviously celebrating the 25th anniversary of the of the United Center. So we're going to have an alumni game next year uh, between Loy- the the old guys from Loyola against the old guys from New Trier um, in a, in a kind of an anniversary game. That so. sounds like so much fun. And what about your mom? What was your mom's sort of role with you and the family business and the entrepreneurship and and watching you play hockey and you know feeding you dinner and keeping you in line and you know oh. talking to you secretly at night about the family the unsung I mean, what was that heroes like? of any I hockey know, player is the, is the hockey mom i know right but i mean yeah make no mistake the moms <laughs> make the hockey players right. go right um the driving the meals the support it's actually a really special thing i think in the sport and I can't speak to other sports because I didn't really play much else other than hockey. But that community of moms that helps these teams and help these kids get through the season, it was incredible. I and, think they're scary, actually. I mean, hockey moms? Well, yeah, I, don't I know. guess when you say that, I, I was thinking like, of all the good Lord things. Have mercy. Yeah, no, exactly. hockey moms are scary. I mean, I'm a swim mom. Like, I feel like when I go to the hockey mom world, I'm like, whoa, these women are like really Constantly intense. Getting shoulder checked. I mean, yeah, I, I, I might be, I'm, I'm going to play a little bit of the old guy back back in my day it didn't wasn't like that but i think things have gotten much more intense as i yeah. said you know i think the level of play was while it was intense i don't think it had it has the um which is only a reflection of the the um the success of the game in illinois for example right um that there is probably a little bit more intensity with with the parental involvement. But I know. The I only mom, have really good memories. Great. Yeah. I mean, moms are great. I'm not, no shade on the moms and the sports moms because I am a sports mom. Um, but um, that's really awesome. <laughs> All right. Wow. This has been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for sharing all of these awesome stories and insights and and giving us a peek into what it's like to be you. And we know that a lot of people are going to gain some amazing insights and gems from this conversation. So I'm Esther. I'm Ginger. I'm Danny. And this is The Honest Field Guide. We'll talk to you next time. The Honest Field Guide podcast is produced by Burke Creative, written and created by Ginger Birkenbuehl and Esther Coro. The podcast is recorded in the innovation and technology capital of the Midwest, Chicago. Original music is written by and provided courtesy of Utah Carroll. Follow Honest Field Guide on Instagram and Twitter. The opinions expressed on The Honest Field Guide are opinions only and only represent the views of Ginger Burke and Buell and Esther Ikoro. E.